Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's a double shot from our featured artist today, Scott Martin. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Don't 
thing on earth on people like you and me. Keep all your dreams in your sights and let them run to the light when you see it
Let's go climb up this mountain Hand in hand, my friend We'll be high above the valley When the bells ring out again We'll be high above the valley When the bells ring out again Scott Martin from his brand new release, and we've got Scott on the line. Hey, Scott, how you been? Hey, Richie, I've been I've been well considering everything we're all going through, but thank yeah. you. Well, now this is the first time you've been on our show, and we always like to give our fans an opportunity to get to know who you are. And the best way to do that is to look at your journey, how you got to this point in your career. So, give us the story of Scott Martin. Well, I was I was a professional musician when I was younger in Los Angeles. I was there in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I was originally from the Northwest. Um, but arriving in Los Angeles in the 1980s, uh, shortly after that, I had a production deal with my band with a producer named George Tobin, who was at the time producing Smokey Robinson and some other folks. That didn't pan out. We didn't get signed. Uh, but a couple years later, uh, while I was doing club work, I started touring with my band with Linda Carter, who was Wonder Woman. Um, and while all that was going on, I was starting to get a lot of vocal session work in L.A. Um, and then during the course of that 12 or so years later, in the last couple of years, I actually came really close with a couple of deals. I had Bruce Hornsby's manager interested in me. I have creative artists in Beverly Hills trying to get me signed. And when those things didn't work out, I decided to make a change and move to Colorado. And uh, then shortly after getting to Colorado in the early 90s, I actually did get signed to a new small label in L.A., um, which spent about 50 grand to record a project in Los Angeles and then did not release it so it's like uh, a little bit more of the same but it was all really good learning experiences um, all this while you know I'd been um, playing acoustic guitar since I was a kid um, my music my music journey really started as a youngster I guess when I was going to church as a, as a young toddler um, way back in the 60s um, and you know I just uh my, my college education included a lot of classical training, um, which I think influences um, a lot of how I write, because I, I think I just uh, really absorbed the, um, the way that classical composers developed melody and harmonic, um, you know, the, the music that they wrote, uh, the themes, uh, you know, the motifs throughout the music. And so I, I, I don't... I don't work as a classical musician at all, but I think I, I think musically, I, I think that way melodically and harmonically. Um, anyway, I moved to Austin in the late '90s, um, and after a break of having raised a family, having a, a couple of kids that had grown up, I started playing music again about five years ago. Recorded my first record after that break um, in Austin. Mark Hallman, who's produced a lot of great artists in Austin. Uh, produced that record that I released in 2018, which was called Missing. And uh, and then, uh, well, I guess the, I can 
quickly fast forward to, you know, 2020, and we can start talking about my journey from there on with this new record. Okay. Well, let's talk about the new record. Um, when you were putting this together, what were your, your objectives for this? What were your goals for this particular re- release? I think, first of all, I really sonically wanted... Um, I really wanted a record to sound as good as some of the records I, I admired, like, you know, just great sounding uh, acoustic guitar recordings, uh, vocals, etc. I wanted to keep it simple and transparent, uh, not too compressed, you know, etc. And, and I, I've, I've never, you know, I've never worked as an engineer myself um, on a recording project, but... The, my my priorities really were just for the music to come through without a lot of distractions, uh, and I had a few musicians in mind that I wanted to use uh, that I did end up using that were in, in the United States and in Europe. So there was a lot of remote recording that happened as well. Um, but I start. I, I guess I I I wanted ten really good songs, so I actually demoed and tracked. Not not demoed. I tracked fourteen songs. I sent those 14 out to a collection of good friends in the music business. They helped. They voted on what they liked, and then the the ones that got the most votes were the 10 songs that ended up on the record. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about you as a songwriter. Um, every songwriter has their way of tapping in the muse. Um, what is your process when you sit down to write? You know, my process always... Uh, no matter what I might try to do otherwise, always starts with music. Um, whether it's a melody or a guitar riff or a piano progression, um, I almost have, almost always have fully formed musical songs done before I start writing a lyric. I mean, I might start toying with some lyrics while I'm in the process, but that's usually how it goes. Um, and then... And I, and I could probably, if I didn't have to write lyrics, I could probably write 10 songs a week. Because um, the music part of it is just really natural for me and, and I guess, easy. Uh, the lyrics are a whole different story and take a, a lot of effort. And I think I think it's probably true with a lot of musicians, a lot of, a lot of songwriters. But when it comes to the lyrics, well, when I was a younger man, I would write songs much more quickly than I do now. And I think I'm just, either much more patient or just force myself to, I mean, rewriting is what it's all about for, for me in the end. I will literally go months, some songs I've actually worked on for, for more than a year. Um, that's happened a number of times. But patience is really important. I think it's, it's interesting how ideas come to me, you know, when I'm driving the car, when I wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night. Um, it's just a, it's a process that I think you have to be patient with, but uh, it, it, given time, I, I think time, giving it enough time is really the key to allowing good songs to, uh, to come out. Okay. Now, let's, you had mentioned melody. That you, this is kind of your, your, your forte is, is creating melodies, and every, art, every songwriter has their way of finding those melodies, whether it's you know embedded through a chord progression, or even if it's just a rhythmic idea that sparks that mem- that uh, melody. What is your your kind of go to when you look for melodies? Um, well, I don't I don't think there's any formula necessarily, Richie, but I will say that I find songs that don't have melodic um, dynamics to them. When I say melodic dynamics, in other words, 
a melody that I think you know goes higher on the chorus significantly. Um, I mean, I don't mean stratospheric, but I do mean changes that make it really dramatic and interesting. Um, I, you know, whether I'm starting out lower in a song and then going higher in the chorus, the most thing about melodies that I like is I. If, if, if there's tensions to the melody, if it's just diatonic, which means it just adheres directly to the chords, it's not as interesting to me as having major sevenths or sharp nines or, or sharp thirteens and their flat fives. The kinds of tensions that give a melody um, the emotional, um, uh, emotional substance that it can have. Um, so I, I guess I, I tend to go for those just in the right places, those kind of tensions that um, that, that make a melody interesting, um, and then those might be reflected in the in the accompaniment as well, but not necessarily. Um, but a lot of times, with, with my acoustic guitar playing, I am actually playing, a, a, I guess, what you could call an indicated arrangement, where there are part there are parts within the guitar picking that I'm doing. And a lot of times, it's finger picked that actually are doubling or else harmonizing the melody that I'm singing. Um, but I think one of the biggest lacks, one of the biggest things that bother me about a lot of music that, that people do is that melodies aren't that interesting. And it just seems like, to me, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm showing my age, but I think melodies used to be more interesting for the most part. Not that there aren't people still doing it, but there's a lot, there's just too much music where the melody needs to be more interesting. So I... I really strive to give it some emotional punch with that melody. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the toolkit that you use as a songwriter. You had mentioned that, you know, of course, guitar is your main instrument, but you work on piano. Um, you know, and, and a lot of songwriters have embraced technology as part of their toolkit, whether it's their cell phone to, you know, capture those momentary ideas, or they have a home recording studio that allows them to lay out a structure and then write to that structure. What is in your toolkit? Yeah, when I'm just hacking out ideas, I do use the voice memos on my on my iPhone a lot. Um, so I will record, if I'm driving and I come up with an idea, whether it's lyric or melody, I'll use that if I'm sitting out on my deck or in my studio and I'm with my guitar and I'm working on a new song. I'm recording those rough ideas because it's amazing how they will just evaporate and disappear sometimes. We don't do that. So I will. I have. So I have voice memos, probably hundreds of them now, going back. You know, in the last five six years since I started actively writing and recording again. Um, and when I start a new project next, I will be going back into those voice memos to listen to things I'm sure I have completely forgotten um, you know as far as those for, for, for seeds of new song ideas so that's the way I um, keep track of those ideas and then um, I will yeah I in, the, in my home studio uh, I will then demo songs when I get uh, when I feel like I've got something that's ready for that I'm using logic Pro uh, I've got I, I use Neumann mics uh, on my guitar and, and my voice, um, you know, to, uh, but the demo process is really, if I get around to demoing, I'm, I'm, I'm actually probably at that point tracking guitar and vocal tracks for, for the next record. I haven't done that yet. So any writing I've done since my last record, um, the one that's being released uh, coming up, I've, I've just recorded those ideas and voice memos. Okay. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about that one moment that I think every songwriter has issues with. Uh, it's the moment where you put the pen down. Uh, you know, you can write the hell out of a song. I always said that a song is never really written. It's always rewritten. Um, you know, you work on it. You massage it. You get it to the point you want it. But you got to have a, a moment where you say, okay, I've gone as far as I can with this. It's time to give it to the producer, give it to the band, let them put their fingerprints on it. How do you determine that moment in a song's life? You know, if I if I'm not if I'm not really sure about a song, it's probably not either not going to get finished or at all, or um, I will just kind of mentally blacklist it. I guess you might say. But when it comes to the final moment of it, the time of it feeling finished, it varies with the song, of course. But there is oftentimes just one part that's left that feels unfinished, um, and it may take you know, days or weeks or even months um, for that to come into place. But it's when it finally clicks, it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever drove a stick shift, but it's kind of like that satisfying feeling of it, of it, you know, of clicking into gear and, you, and, you know, you, 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 you're ready to go with it. So it's, I, I don't, I can't, I can't give you an answer for every single song, what, what that's like, but I think I would just say, I know, it, I know it when it feels done. But the caveat to all of this, Richie, is that it, as you mentioned in the question, songs often do get changed a little bit, even after a record is released. You'll hear artists, when they're performing, they'll change a lyric a little bit, or the melody. I think part of that's because we get bored, and part of it's just because sometimes we actually think of a better idea somewhere down the line. Our imaginations are not, uh, I mean, they're always, they're always working. Oh, yeah. I mean, the song is never really done. I mean, you know, you get it out on the road, and it, it, it evolves from that point. You know, I can't tell you how many songs I've had in my studio recorded, and then, you know, a year down the line, you know, this song has evolved into something else. You know, but you have to get it into the studio sooner or later. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about that environment working in the studio. Uh, you know, having a good song gives you something to say but going into the studio creates the voice for not only that song but also you as an artist that identity that people can immediately when they hear it they say ah i know who that is um what is your process when you get into the studio that allows you to capture your sound well first of all i want to just say when i'm writing a song and getting ready to record it um I've already written the song with, I mean, I try to come up with um, identifiably unique guitar work at the top or a melody, something that just isn't just um, just plain old strumming, I guess you could say. And, and also with the vocal. Um, I like to think that my voice has a, has a unique character that people would identify and, and, and recognize, you know, later when they hear it. And I think coming up with, you know, that, sound that you have is really important to be to be faithful to it and to give it the best settings that you can give it um but in the studio for me i think it's about you know working with the right microphones uh learning the right distance from the microphone that you're going to sing on any given song in the end you want the every song to be emotive to make people feel 
And it's harder to do in a recording than it is in a live performance. When I do a house concert, it's it never fails that there's people that are laughing and crying. Um, but you don't know, you know. I, I think there's less chance of that happening in recordings unless you really, really, um, you know, task task yourself with creating a performance that is um, as representative as possible to that idea that you first had, and, and you know, drawing that emotion out of you, out of the performance. And I agree. I mean, you know, it's a sterile environment. You know, there's no question about that. You know, you're not getting an audience to feed off of so you have to capture this performance almost like an actor you have to create this mood you know what i mean oh yeah and i I have to say richie it's really easy to fool yourself in the recording studio because it can sound so good in your headphones you know Mm -hmm. it's like you really it's i have to be ultra critical of what i'm doing because i think it's really easy to believe that because it sounds so good to me that it's going to sound that great to everybody else and I, I think that's why it's it's important to um, to get other other people's feedback, and also a really, really incredibly important part of my process, which you, I'm sure you know about, is using reference tracks. And it isn't so much about the performance itself, performance itself, but the sonic quality of what I of what I create. I'm constantly comparing it to artists and recordings that I that I respect, so that I I feel like I'm creating something on the same level. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I've been a recording engineer since the early 80s, and, you know, I'm not against using a reference track. In fact, they've created software now that you can input a reference track in and do a sonic comparison to, you know, what you're doing now. You know, uh, it's, it's oh, yeah. just amazing what you can do. Oh, you know, absolutely. You can you can go in and look at the waveforms, the, the frequency responses. Um, you know, you can look at the EQ of whether it's, you know Jackson Brown or a hip hop artist. Um, you know to compare it to what you're doing to see if it, you know how yours stacks up. Right. Now let's talk a little bit about the the lineup on this. Who's playing on it? Well, I was really fortunate to have some really talented folks um, that I've some of whom I knew when I was from when I was in Los Angeles, um, and some other folks that I've met more recently. But uh, first of all, I guess I'll mention my, my co-producer. Um, who's primarily a, um, a bass player and also a guitarist, but Michael Henchman in uh, Vancouver, Washington, co-produced this, and he played fretted and fretless bass as well as some drums, um, some electric guitar um, swells, some percussion, and did some sound design. Um, and then um, in, uh, I'm just going to go down my list here, Bart DeWin, who's over in the Netherlands, played uh, some Wurlitzer electric piano on one song. Uh, an old friend of mine, David Schwartz, who is a um, well-known um, TV and film music producer in Los Angeles, played upright bass on one song. Uh, Ed Berghoff, uh, who's now in Ventura, California, who spent some time in Nashville um, uh, back in the ni- uh, 90s and early 2000s. Very talented guy, played electric guitar, mandolin, and dobro. Uh, um, a fellow in uh, Portugal named... Jao Martins uh, recorded uh, a track of Hurdy Gurdy, which is a basically a medieval instrument, which uh, you may or may not be familiar with. Oh, I know what Hurdy Gurdy um, is. Yeah, yeah. I'm an old guy, really cool. man. I, <laughs> yeah, I remember it, it, all it, this it, old stuff. You know. Well, people hear that Hurdy Gurdy and they go, "What is that?" Cause a lot of people have no idea. Uh, it gives that song a real different sound. And then um, 
Pete Demore from uh, Ordinary Elephant played banjo on one of the songs. Uh, an old friend of mine from Los Angeles, Rose Winters, who now lives in Napa Valley, sang a vocal duet with me on one of the songs. Um, and then a really dear friend of mine that passed away this last year, a drummer, one of the best drummers in Austin, Scott Lanningham, uh, played drums on one of the songs. And then um, lastly, there's another Scott Martin. His first initial is T, so we, just to differentiate him from me, T. Scott Martin played some pedal steel uh, on one of the songs. And all of those people recorded their tracks remotely. We were not together in the studio uh, for any of this. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, that's pandemic style, you know? Yeah, yeah. when 2020 started, um, uh, well, when March came around and I had been planning on getting a record started, um, I just, I realized I had to dive in. In fact, the day that uh, the lockdown was going to start, you know, I like like a lot of people, I didn't know how long it was going to go and what, you know, business, businesses would shut down or what. I just, I ran down to the recording um, equipment rental shop here in Austin that rents just about everything. And I just loaded up the back of my truck with some microphones, monitors, preamps, stuff I just that I didn't have. I just thought, well, if I'm going to do this at home, I better get set up to do this correctly. <laughs> okay. Now let's let's talk a little bit about um, getting it out there. You know, when you do a project, you've got to create a team to kind of get it to radio, get it to press, create the buzz. Um, and you're working with Adam Dawson from Broken Jukebox Media. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Well, I met Adam at a Southwest Regional Folk Alliance. Uh, I think it was the first one I went to. Um, I've been to a couple of them, and then. In two, I guess it was 2018 and 2019. He was introduced to me by friends, and we, you know, at first uh, I, he was just an acquaintance. Um, but when I came, when it when it came around to doing this record, um, I just really wanted to work with someone to get it out there more successfully than I had done on my own in the, on the last record. And Adam just came with with great um, recommendations. He's a great guy. Where he's worked with a lot of a lot of talented artists, um, and so I I, um, I did a Kickstarter last spring, which included the budget for hiring hiring Adam to do my U.S. and European promotion. So uh, I'm I'm excited about about this process, and uh, I mean I've ended up with you here because of Adam, uh, and I'm just grateful to have someone that's really good at that part of it. Um, so that I don't need to worry about it, and I know I wouldn't be doing as good a job regardless. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit um, about the music industry. Um, we all know that streaming is now the way that consumers consume music. I mean, let's face it, you know, they get more music, they pay less for it. It's, it's an ideal situation for the consumer. But what has happened over the 20-something years that we've been in this digital revolution is the consumer has now shifted their perception of recorded music from being a product that they used to purchase and, and, you know, and store on their shelves or in their phones is now a service that's available 24-7. They expect it to be there. They expect to be able to listen to any music that's been recorded in the last hundred years. How has this shift in perception affected you as an artist? 
Well, it's been a it's been a dramatic change. I mean, especially considering you know, that I started my music career in the '80s, back when you know you had to have a record deal pretty much to get into a, a multi-track studio and record. And that was back when we had two-inch, twenty-four twenty-four track tape. Um, and I remember those days well. Um, but then and then I remember going through the '90s and seeing ADAPs appear. Uh, first, there was DAT tapes, then there was the ADAP machines. And then digital audio came around, um, and then you know peer-to-peer sharing happened uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, you know, all of this has changed so dramatically. It, I I like the fact that it is it has decentralized the power in the industry. Um, it's more of a challenge for individual artists, but I I'm encouraged and inspired by artists that have you know taken all these options that are available to them and, you know, made, you know, successful careers, you know, that enabled them to do their art, um, created those careers by using all these tools. But it's it's daunting. There's just so much to do. I mean, the social media alone, um, the promotional part of it, you know, why Facebook is just essentially... Um, it's one of the main ways that we have a communicating with our audience. You know, I also use Twitter and I also use Instagram and I use my email list. Um, but we often, I think, feel like we're, we're slaves to the social media, but I just think you need to find a balance uh, with that. But I think that the industry has changed in most ways for in a really good way and that artists are more self-empowered now. Uh, we just have to learn to navigate these, these uh, technical and business waters uh, you know, to benefit our, you know, us as artists and the audiences that 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 we want to hear us. The difficulty, of course, is in the remuneration. You know, it used to be, uh, you know, artists made enough from royalties from their recordings to uh, oftentimes survive comfortably, and that's changed so much. Live performances now are so much uh, bigger part. I know for me, house concerts are the main way that I earn money from music now. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, I think we talked before the show a little bit about upcoming technologies that I think you know a lot more than I do about, um, for example, blockchain. Yeah, well, you know, that I think is, is, is coming. Uh, but, one, you know, one of the things that I noticed uh, with the pandemic uh, is that a lot of artists went on to social media because they had the time. They started to work the social media. They started to do live streaming. And the fans themselves really gravitated to this because they got this intimate look into the artist's world outside of the stage. Uh, They got almost a reality show mentality to the content that was being created to the point now that the brand has become the product. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, how, so how did you, uh, Richie? How did you do with either doing or watching these live stream shows? Did you did you feel a sense of burnout after a while, or how did, how did how did that experience feel to you? Well, you know, it's interesting because the main fan base, you know, all right, they may have gotten burned out, but look at it this way: there are, uh, I mean, we all know before the pandemic that live music had issues. You know, you would go to a gig, there'd be 10 people there, and eight of them were blood relatives, you know? <laughs> right. 
we had issues with live music. The problem was we couldn't get people into that intimate environment to watch this music being created in a moment. Now, on the internet, there is a huge potential fan base that never had that frame of reference before. They never really went to small clubs to see indie artists perform. And they would go to these big shows and they would see music that was created, you know, or being performed that sounded just like the recording. That had um, excitement being generated by pyrotechnics and choreography and costume changes and, and light shows and whatever the case may be. They didn't have that experience of watching musicians create in that moment where all of the experience of, the, of that day, of that week, is all now manifesting themselves into this performance that will never be repeated, that you can't go to Spotify and, and listen to again. It is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And I think that... This world of content creation and, and being able to go on, on, on social media and doing live streams, creating a brand where people feel connected to you as a person, it's, it's a, a different um, mindset um, for the fan that they, they, you know, now when they go past that marquee, and they see your name up there, that they may turn in and say, hey, I know this guy from Facebook, or we're friends on Instagram, or I, you know, I watched his TikToks, you know, almost like this reality show celebrity um, kind of mentality, where they want to see you in person. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's definitely opened up opportunities for people to see you in that Right. Quiet, I mean, if Chloe can sitting there in your studio. Yeah, if Chloe Kardashian showed up somewhere and stood there and did nothing, she would draw a crowd. Not because <laughs> of her talent, not because of what she can do, but because of her sense of celebrity, that 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 uh, reality show mentality, people are curious to see that person in person. And this, you know, if you look at the internet, it's a broadcast network, and every independent artist has their own reality show. And that's. Yeah, I think it's easy. I think it. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say. I think it's easy for us to forget as artists the the stuff that's interesting to people. You know, we take for granted, and we get we're down on ourselves at times. We forget about what what it looks like from the outside. We really lose that um, perspective. But I do agree with you that there's there's a lot of content that we can create that's just showing our the way we work or what's on, what's happening that day, um, you know what's where I'm at with this particular project, and it's a unique uh, perspective, a unique peek into a world that you know most people don't have. Right. I mean, you you know, you look at shows like Songland or you look at shows like The Voice or you look at American Idol. I mean, these are what people are are tuning into as their reality shows. But even mm -hmm. if you go on to social media, see what some of the larger artists are doing. You know, you've got um um 
you know, David Grohl, you know, doing drum battles with an 11-year-old girl drummer, you know, <laughs> and then taking her on stage to perform with the Foo Fighters, you know? You've got, mm-hmm. you know, um, what the hell's his name, the country guy that uh, does, was in uh, The Blind Side. Uh, oh, you got me. Um, anyway, he goes up and finds people that are covering his songs and comments on them. And says, you know, great job, love your voice, love your arrangement, yada, yada. Um, you know, Taylor Swift goes out and she hunts down her super fans and invites them to her house for a release listening party. You know, I mean... Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, these are things that, even though it may never happen to me, the fact that it happens establishes a brand for that particular mm-hmm. artist that they are that magnanimous or, you know, um, giving of themselves or whatever the case may be, that people now are looking at when they see them or hear them, that they're going to gravitate towards them because of that brand, you know? Yeah, I I agree. I mean, they they put themselves out there, and there's a generosity to a lot of that, as you described, like with Taylor Swift. Uh, a sensitivity to what it's like to just be the fan and then to show them that appreciation. I, I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and we had mentioned, you know, that, that whole thing with the blockchain. You know, I, I believe that Spotify's days are numbered in that there are, you know, like Audius coming up where there are going to be streaming platforms that are going to emerge that are going to take spotify's place and pay the artist equitably um you know we were talking earlier you know there is a study that i had looked at where they pointed out that of all the billions of dollars that are generated by the music industry only 12 percent gets funneled back to the artist the rest of it is all absorbed by these these middlemen that are in every aspect of the industry and you take the sports industry, like the NFL, the NBA, they get up to 50% of all the generated income because they've cut a lot of that out of their their mm. revenue stream. There's a huge you know, inequity there. That's a big difference. Yeah, it's a huge difference. Now, these, these um, uh, blockchain uh, streaming platforms are promising up to 90% of a return of that revenue to the to the artist, and they'll get paid immediately upon stream, instead of waiting a month. And then, you know, if you went to Spotify right now and you said, "How are you distributing this money?" You would get crickets. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? They're yeah, not going mean, to say yeah. shit to you. You know, there's they don't. There's been some deals made, I think, between the labels and oh, yeah. the streaming platforms that are just, you know, basically. I mean, the money's still there, I believe. Oh, the money's it's there. Not going to the artists. No, no, it's going all over the place, but it ain't getting to the artists. And the, you know, yeah, the so record I, I companies, the blo- you know, they're yeah, buying yeah, I mean, stock well, I, in it. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to wonder what record company. Well, it, record companies are already um, eclipsed compared to what they used to be. But with blockchain, that's. Uh, I mean, that's a really incredibly wonderful exciting development what you're what you're describing there i think it's don't you think it's going to be dependent depend largely well it's not only on acceptance by the public but there's a whole lot of computing going on there that i understand is uh, i mean it, it's really it's really computing intensive i mean do you think we've got to have to be able 
it was computer down there or what's what do we need well, the thing is, is that, all right, take the, the platform that I know that is in existence right now. There is a, you know, uh, an Android and an iOS um, player already done and, and ready to go with discovery nodes and all of that stuff that you have on Spotify for this platform. As far as the computing power, Ethereum is an extremely intensive computing um, platform. Uh, and and their blockchain is is very um, computing intensive as far as how you um, you know do all the transactions. But now you have the Polygon, you have the Solana, all these new blockchain technologies that are making it easier. It's evolving. So we're going to get to a point where that's going to be a really um, nullified, just like streaming had issues with bandwidth in the beginning. You know, how can we stream music at any quality if we don't have the bandwidth? We can't get Internet, you know, in, in you know, in rural areas or, you know, on the road or whatever the case may be. But now that's all taken care of. 5G, you know, 6G, whatever they come up with, it's all there. Just like the blockchain is evolving as well with that as that initial uh, issue with you know the computing power needed is being addressed as we move to these new technologies for the industry. We're headed for so, a revolution. Richie, Richie not, not not to get off track here, but let me ask you: Sure, if I were going to invest some money in a blockchain technology that's going to change the music business, where where would where would I go? Um. Well. Audius right now has a way of investing in them, but unfortunately it's not available in the U.S. right now because of the fact is the way they structured it, their audio dollar. Um, mm. The way they structured it, they almost structured it like a stock option. And because of that, they have to get SEC um, approval. Uh-huh before it's made available in the United States. But you have large uh, crypto uh, exchanges actually investing in this um, company in the anticipation that it will be available here, like Coinbase is a big investor in uh, audience. Uh, you know, and of course, a lot of um, large artists are, as you know, Katy Perry, Jason Derulo, Nas. All these artists are investing their money into this platform. So I would, I would keep my ear to the ground, see which platform is is staying abreast of the changes in blockchain technology. Now, Audius is now transitioning from Polygon to Solana which is a new blockchain that's based on Ethereum, but it's a lot faster, a lot leaner, a lot meaner. So that's something to look at. Okay, cool. That's all really... So Audius, is it A-U-D-I-O-U-S? I-U-S. A-U-D-I-U-S. And it's .co. I want to check that out, .co. Okay. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there an indie blues. Uh, <laughs> we're going to give everyone out there a double shot of your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn turn it up loud. Open the windows. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun.
I remember your face, that first look into your eyes In an office up on Grant and 18th Brief sense of recognition, longing, hoping for fruition. Then your smile and knowing look as the moment passed. The snow was falling, coating all the dumpsters in the alleys. I caught the bus and stared as the monotones faded. An hour or so commuting I wondered what you might be doing Till I was jolted by the brakes And we all swayed One, two, three We do the dance And maybe one day we dance together One, two in code between the floors and through the evening as the world outside was slowing to a stop I finally asked for lunch and one feared your answer would never come but then we were across a table in a crowded shop one, two, three A stray winter beam it parted And the noise of life seemed to simply fall away Until I only heard the beating of my I caught you by surprise Among the silver sword In the glow of the rising sun I only wanted to be where you were I've just said the words I knew were truer Than the life that I'd been living Without your love One, two, three And maybe one day we dance together One, two, three I just wanted you to dance with me One, 
two, three, I just wanted you to dance with me. Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Shout now, huh? 